Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Uh, my name's Preston. Uh, RIM does some amazing things, and so if you have not gotten a chance to participate in that before, it is a pretty awesome deal that they do, so you want to jump into that. It's good to see everybody this morning. It's good to see your faces. It's good to be back home with you. This is home. For those of you I haven't met, it's good to meet you this morning. Um, I have, this is home for us. So I was born and raised here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, served uh, with my dad here in this church. My wife is born and raised here in Tulsa. And three years ago, we stepped out and we followed what we believed was the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we have planted a church in Nashville, Tennessee. And so we've lived there now for three years. The church is about two years old. I send greetings not only from Ashley and my daughter Lucy, but also from this church. And they feel connected to you and actually had Bishop Ed with us a couple months ago speak to us. And, uh, and so I want to say thank you to you all. Many of you have prayed for us. You've supported us. We felt your encouragement. And uh, we just want to say thank you. This feels like family to us. And so thank you so much. Um, also, when you move to a new city, we found something really interesting. Uh, you know, like I said, we moved three years ago, and we were both born and raised here in Tulsa. We lived almost 30 years of our lives in one city in Tulsa. Any of you have had this experience? So you kind of get to this point where you feel like you know so many people because you've spent so much time there. So everywhere you go, the chances are pretty good you're going to run into someone you know, right? So that happens to us. Even when we come back three years later, we, everywhere we go, it seems like we run into somebody that we know. And when you move to a new place, it's kind of hard to break that habit. It's kind of hard to get to the point where you walk into a place and you go, uh, I'm not going to know anyone here, right? We knew one family when we first moved to Nashville, and then we drove them away fairly quickly, and they live <laughs> elsewhere. Kind of serious about that. No, not really. Um, they're not there anymore. But anyway, um, so we knew one family, and so everywhere we go, you kind of have to break this idea of you're going to know people places that you go. And so what my mind did is it started to play tricks on me. So I thought I was seeing all of you different places. I would go into a coffee shop or a restaurant, and I'd go, oh, that's, uh, no, that's not them. I still don't know people, right? <laughs> go place to place. And I remember one particular time I was with my brother somewhere. My brother lives there now, he and his wife, and we were really close and spent a lot of time together. And we were one place, and I'm his older brother, so I already get a lot of eye rolls from him. But, but we're in a restaurant, and, and I look at him, and I said, I think we know that girl over there. I, th I think we know her. In fact, I think she goes to sanctuary. I think she goes to sanctuary, and she's probably visiting or something. We should go say hi to her. We should go say hi. I feel like we should actually know her well. I don't know her, her name, but I feel like we see her a lot. And so I bet you she goes to sanctuary. And my brother gives me an eye roll, and he's like, no, don't go over there. Like, don't, don't say anything to her. And I'm going, I really think, I really think we know her. And he says, I'll tell you later, okay, but don't go say hi to her. So later I asked him, who was that? And he said, no, that was our barista at the coffee shop down the street in Nashville that we see all the time. We drink a lot of coffee, so you think that we know her, but we don't, okay? But if you, so if you ever are in Nashville, give us fair warning so we'll know our mind's not playing tricks on us. We're really seeing you. Would you all stand with me for the reading of our gospel this morning? Our gospel comes from John 14. Starting with verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We're in this section in John's gospel, in the narrative of John's gospel, that's called the farewell discourse. It's from John 14 through 17, and Jesus' ministry has kind of hit this tipping point here. It's kind of gotten to this point where there's not just a few people that know about this. It's starting to become public. In fact, people are starting to ask him, like, who are you, Jesus? Like, what are you here for? Like, tell us. Tell us specifically. Tell us clearly. In fact, one of the passages right before this, a Greek comes up and asks about Jesus. Somebody outside of the Jewish story. So this is starting to get bigger. People are starting to hear about Jesus. They're starting to ask about him. And then right before this, Jesus does something interesting. He gathers his disciples and he has the Last Supper with them. And in this moment, he also predicts that one of them, Judas, is going to betray him. So Judas kind of exits stage right. He's gone. And and they gather together and Jesus says something significant. He's been telling them that he is going to die. He is going to die. Now, if you were one of his first followers, this would be frustrating. This would be maddening. You gave your whole life for this guy. You gave everything. You gave your livelihood. You followed him. You you thought that he would be the one who would redeem you from Roman oppression. He would put the world right. He would restore Israel in its right place. You put your hope in him. And now he says he's going away? That doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, Jesus did three kind of weird things in their minds. First of all, he doesn't really announce that he's the Messiah. Okay? So this is the guy, you're trying to get momentum behind Jesus. You're trying to get people to see who he is. In fact, one of his disciples, right before this passage that we read, he asked him, Jesus, why are you telling us this stuff and not telling the world? If you're really the hope for the world, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really going to liberate us, we got to tell people. Hold a press conference, right? Let the world know. So he doesn't tell people specifically that he's the Messiah in a way that they like. Secondly, he's predicting he's going to die. Typically, you don't want your hope for the world to die, right? Death feels like failure. Feels like you lost. Jesus, what is all this dying talk, this going away talk? That is not the goal at all. That's not the agenda at all. So he predicts that he's going to die. And then third, as he gathers his disciples together for this meal, he bends down to wash their feet. Now, again, you're trying to convince your friends, you're trying to convince the world that this guy's powerful, that he's strong. I know he hasn't gathered weaponry yet. I don't know he doesn't have tons and tons of people behind him. I know he doesn't necessarily look like the most kind of militaristic kind of guy, but he is really big and strong. And then Jesus bends down and takes the form of a slave. Jesus, stop that. Get up. Show people how powerful you are. Show people how mighty you are. Jesus, in their minds, is acting weird. It doesn't make sense. And then Jesus says, you know all these things that you don't understand? All these things that you don't get about me? Well, I'm going to go away, and you need to do them. All right? So not only are they confused about what Jesus is doing, now they're being told that they need to do it as well. Love the way that I love. 
This shift when we go into the farewell discourses here is also a shift to language that is deeply relational. It is about relationship. Now, Jesus has taught them a lot of things. He's been their teacher. But here in these discourses, he's inviting them not to just engage him as a teacher, not just to hear his teachings and practice his teachings, but actually to know him in a deeper way, to know him in a relational way, to know him at the core of who they are. I wonder if some of you have heard this parenting phrase, more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. The idea is that we can teach things to our kids, we can teach lessons to our kids, and they may learn those things. But when they watch us, it actually kind of gets deeper. It gets at the core of who they are. I want you to think for a minute about the people in your life who have formed you and shaped you the most. The people who have taught you the most. The people who have changed you the most. For good, for bad, for ugly, whatever the case is. Think about those people. Maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was parents, maybe it was good friends who formed you and shaped you in a profound way. For me, I think about my parents. Now, today is a special day. My parents have been married 38 years today. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And I've learned so much from them. Um, they've formed and shaped who I am. And I remember some specific lessons that they've taught me. You know, I remember things like my dad taught me how to wash the car, right? I never quite got that right, but I know the steps at least, right? They, they, I remember some of these lessons. I remember um, those kinds of things. But most of the things that they taught me are things I picked up. They're things that formed who I am. They're things that came out of relationship. So some people will say that I have mannerisms like my dad, okay? So I have some of his mannerisms. I have a lot of my mom's personality, okay? So some of that is present there. And a while back, my parents came in and preached at our church in Nashville. And I had this really weird and unique for me situation. You know, I grew up here. I was always in my parents' churches. I was always Brent and Janice's son, and here I am when they come to Nashville and I'm introducing this church, people that don't know them, to my parents, right? It's this cool experience. And one of the things that some of the people that were close to in our church came up to us afterwards and said was, I get it, right? I see it. It's kind of like you're kind of a little bit of both of them, right? And I've heard that really my whole life, that you're a lot like your parents. I remember sometime here years and years ago, I remember somebody came up to me one, one of the first times I think that I preached here and said, wow, I see both of your parents in you. It's kind of like a blend of your parents. Part of me wanted to get kind of sarcastic and go, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, so I'm kind of like my parents like together, right? So are you saying that maybe like if my mom and my dad had a child that it might look like me? <laughs> Right? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> but it's true. I was listening the other day to one of my sermons, and I started hearing my dad's speech pattern come out. It's like, wow, I sound like my dad here, which is good, because for years people said I sounded like my mom. <laughs> so <laughs> this is good. But much of what I learned from my parents is not genetics. It's learned behavior. 
things that over time I saw and it got to the core of who I am out of relationship, they led me for years, right? I'm going to be changed and formed and shaped by that. So we may remember specific lessons from our lives, but sometimes there are people in our lives who are so significant to us that they change us, that they change the core of who we are. So Jesus had given his disciples a lot of teachings, He told them this is the way of the kingdom of God. He taught them over and over again. He healed and they'd seen those things. But now at the farewell discourses is this intentional time where Jesus says, these things need to get at the center, at the core of who you are. They need to shape you relationally. Eugene Peterson says this, they, speaking of the disciples, know what has happened in Jesus, kingdom, salvation. They know what the calling means. Parables and discourses and prayer have made everything vivid. All this now needs to get assimilated and digested. It needs to get metabolized into the muscle and bone, the nerve endings and brain cells of the body of Christ. They have a new basic identity. Friends, disciples, followers of Jesus. Something happens when we follow in the way of Jesus that forms us deeply, that shapes who we are. Those who want to turn the life of Jesus into just moral teachings. Jesus is one kind of ethical path, and he gives a really good ethical path, but really all the gospel is is moral teachings. Those will have a difficult time with the gospel of John because the gospel of John is deeply relational. It's not just about moral commands. In fact, right before this, Jesus had talked about bearing fruit in your life is about staying connected to me, staying connected to the vine, this organic metaphor about relationship. It's not just an ethical path. It's about relationship. It's about connectedness. And at the same time, just as those who want to turn it into moral commands on one side, just as that's lacking... On the other side, if we turn this idea of relationship with Jesus into just this feelings kind of thing, then we're limited too. Because feelings are limited. If you try to just read John's gospel and think about relationship with Jesus as just these feelings, then you're going to get tripped up. Because he says explicitly, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. There's a command, there's a commitment there. And I want to suggest that this kind of relationship is what we want from all of our relationships. This kind of relationship that's not just moral commands or imperatives and not just feelings, but something deeper. We want that out of all of our relationships. So in our marriages, our hope for our marriages is is not that we would treat them as simply moral and ethical commands, right? We don't want our marriage to just be a moral and ethical command. We don't want it to be a robotic kind of thing, right? I love my wife, right? Must buy flowers today, right? It's not this checklist. We don't want, there's something deeper than that, right? It's not just a moral command. It's not just a robotic kind of I love you. And yet at the same time, our hope is not that our marriage is just driven by feelings either. Marriages that are only driven by feelings have a shelf life, right? They have a ceiling. Those initial feelings go away. They're limited. When we get married, there's something about when we say that we're going to love and honor and cherish. It's a vow. It's a command. It's a choice. It's something that we commit to. It's not feelings. It's choices. It's a direction that we have intentionally pointed our lives in. Jesus calls his disciples to that kind of love, a different kind of love, one that's not driven by robotic Moral obligation. 
and one that is just not driven by feelings, but being pointed in a specific direction. And he calls them to love, but he calls them to love in a specific way. Calls them to love as he loves. Sometimes that can get lost on us depending on what we hear when we hear the word love, right? Sometimes I think we tend to think of love in the abstract. So we talk about loving one another. Yes, we want to love one another. But often what we mean by that is we want to just have strong feelings for other people. But that's limited. That's different here. Now, there's nothing wrong with strong feelings. Strong feelings are good, and I think feelings can actually point us to something different, can point us to something that's to come. But I also want to suggest that the absence of feelings can also sometimes point us to the same place. What do I mean by that? Well, many of you have heard this story recently of Mother Teresa. Many of you know Mother Teresa's life, but in the past however many years, uh, they have discovered some journals of hers. And uh, in her journals, there's some just frank honesty about her life, about her struggle, about the pain that she went through as she served people, uh, the people of India, the orphans of India. And, and some of them are arguing with God. They're questioning God. They're feeling God's absence. There are some who have picked up these things and have said, see, Mama T really didn't have faith after all. She really was lacking. She, she really didn't have the faith that everybody thinks that she did. But I want to suggest something different. That actually these questions, these feelings of absence, these anger, actually might be a sign of true faith. Because as we see Mother Teresa's life, even in the midst of the absence, the anger, the frustration, the struggle, she continued to serve the poor and the oppressed. She continued to serve the church. So if we're all dependent on feelings and what we feel at that time, we're going to be limited. But sometimes even the absence of feelings can point us towards the kingdom of God. Jesus feels this, fills this word love with a very specific content. It is love as I have loved. In the previous passage, it's as I have loved you, so you should love one another. It's really important that we, we know he's not just saying, disciples, I'm going to go, so get along. Don't fight anymore. Get along with each other. Or just tolerate each other, right? Because you can't get anything done if you don't tolerate each other. No, it is love each other as I have loved you. This is a bend down and wash one another's feet kind of love. This is a give my life for you kind of love. This is different. A couple weeks ago, Sergeant Joe Cerna uh, was in a situation. He, uh, Sergeant Joe Cerna um, served in the military, served in the army for over two decades, including four combat tours in Afghanistan. You can imagine how challenging his life would be. In fact, he almost died three times. Once from a suicide bomber, once from a roadside bomb, and then one time, the armored truck that he was in rolled over into a canal, and he almost drowned. In fact, it was one of his brothers that reached down and unlocked his seatbelt, and Joe was the only one to survive. Right? Unlike many people, um, you know, well, first of all, uh, Sergeant Cerna received three Purple Hearts, many, many commendations. But like many in the military and many who have gone, many who have gone through this experience, uh, he struggled to leave the battlefield behind. Right? Struggled with PTSD. Uh, he was caught for driving under the influence and was sentenced to a, uh, a rehab program, a court-mandated rehab program. 
In fact, he appeared before the same judge, Judge Oliveira, over 25 times. Two weeks ago, and he was updating his progress. Part of that was normal. Two weeks ago, he appeared before Judge Oliveira, and he actually lied about a urine test that he took. So Judge Oliveira sentenced him to one day in the county, da- county jail, 24 hours, in a neighboring county. But then what Judge Oliveira did after that kind of surprised him. He actually drove him to the jail. He said, get in my car and drive you to the jail. Drove him to the jail and he got out and he walked him in and the cell door was open for Joe and Joe walked in and sat on the bunk and right after him came Judge Oliveira who sat right next to him on the bunk. Said, "Um, what are you doing here? (laughs) He said, I'm gonna serve this sentence with you. See, Judge Oliveira himself was a Gulf War veteran and he was worried that a night alone would actually trigger Cerna's uh, PTSD. So they sat and they talked. They shared war stories, and both of them said it was more like a father and son conversation than it was a judge and convict situation. I want to suggest that this story is just a glimpse into what a kind of Jesus-filled love looks like. One who steps into our circumstance with us and loves us. Now, some of these words that Jesus said says are kind of hard for us in our 21st century ears. Many of us who are 21st century Christians, they, the words that Jesus says seem awfully exclusive at first, okay? Um, sometimes I think we like to think of ourselves as enlightened people. Many of us spend most of our time trying to convince other people who aren't Christians that we're a lot like them, that really there's not that much that's really weird about being a Christian. And there's something about that impulse, that desire to kind of draw together with others who are different, that is good and very biblically consistent. But here we see the other side of the story. Jesus talks about the world. He says, there are many in the world who will not obey my teachings. They're not going to follow in this way of love. We see the other side here, and it shows us that the way of Jesus is weird. Choosing to live in the way of Jesus is weird. And there are many in our world who will seek a different kind of power, a dominating kind of power, rather than the one who washes feet. This is going to seem strange. There are many who will seek after counterfeits for peace. And if we need proof for that, sometimes our tendency is, yeah, the world is really bad out there, right? We need to, you know, we live as Christians and we're different and the world is bad out there. But I want to suggest that if we need proof that this world is broken, that we seek after different stories, we don't need to look out there somewhere. We need to look in the tendencies of our own heart. That each of us is pulled in counterfeit directions. Each of us is pulled after different stories. We were here in Tulsa, my family and I, a couple weeks ago. And uh, we ate lunch at Peppers at Utica Square, right? Many of you know this. And uh, so there, we were sitting out on the patio and, you know, in the parking lots. You know, they have those, I don't know what the name for them is, but those stoppers for cars, right? Those things that kind of mark the parking space and the very front of the space and so my daughter was playing as she does just running everywhere all over the patio and she was playing in between that stopper and the curb okay she's playing in this place and I'm two feet from her so I'm really close to her the whole time she's safe I promise and then all of a sudden a car starts backing out and she rolls down her window and begins to yell at me she chews me out how dare you let your child play out in the street, right? And then a bunch of things I couldn't hear, right? She's just yelling and yelling, and she's going to get hit by a car, and you shouldn't let her play there, blah, 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 blah. And in that moment, I was challenged to live my life by a different story. Okay. 
I wanted to choose a more dominating meta narrative for my life, right? And if I think about it closely, and in that moment, I had kind of a decision of what to do. I won't tell you what I did, but no. <laughs> but in that moment, I did realize where, um, where this struggle, where this pulling was coming from. Because honestly, if I'm honest about this, there is part of me that fears that I'm not an attentive enough parent. That worries that I'm not protective enough. That worries that there's something about me and my protectiveness. And that pushed all those buttons, right? There's something that rose up in me and said, I can choose a different story. I can choose a different path. I can prove to her that these lies are not true, right? I think there's part of, part of us that wonders these things constantly. And yet, being pulled into all of these different directions, being tempted to, towards all of these counterfeits, we still choose to be his disciples, We choose to point ourselves in a particular direction. We choose the weird path. And there's a reason why it's weird. The reason why it's weird is because it's part of a different world. It's part of a new creation, a new world. When a new creation hits the old creation, when a new world hits the old world, they don't always fit together. In fact, they often violently react to one another. There's something about the way of Jesus that doesn't always feel natural. It feels different. It's weird. And in this way of living, there's a peace that Jesus gives us. That's what he says here to his disciples. And it's different from the kind of peace that the world gives. Peace in the biblical tradition is more than just like inner tranquility. It's not just peaceful. Everything's kind of calm in my life and in my heart and in my mind. Peace is actually about everything being right. Everything being as it's intended to be. And a lot of us have a lot of different ideas about how that will come about in our world. Just look at our political discourse right now. So many that peace will only come about through this. If we elect the right candidate, then our country will be right. Our country will be restored. Peace could come. But this peace that we long for is not just an in-the-world global kind of thing. It's also peace that starts with us. It starts with how we live. And I don't know about you, but I have this tendency, whenever I feel like things in my life get out of control, when they get chaotic, my tendency is to immediately jump to my own strength. How can I fix this right now? How can I use what I have to do this? So my job at the church, when things get squirrely, which in churches sometimes things get squirrely, right? The tendency is I didn't do something right. That's my fault. I need to fix this right now. I need to use this thing and fix this thing. Or things don't turn out how we thought that they, they would. Then it's, it's my fault and I can fix this. I don't know about you, but some of us, when a financial problem comes up in our life, our first tendency is this anxiety out of fear and how do we quickly fix this. But I want to suggest that that's actually such a self-centered tendency in us. Even if we think we didn't do something right and we kind of put ourselves down, it's still self-centered. It acts as if whether good or bad, the world revolves around me and I can fix it. I can make things better. Now let let me say, there's nothing wrong with using our own tangible skills. They're given to us for a reason. But this anxiety that we feel that comes out of fear, that comes out of these lies that we've been told, this need to fix, this thought that if I'm good enough, everything will work out right. That's peace that the world gives. It's a different kind of peace. And it usually comes because those buttons of fear and insecurity are pushed. Yet we have been given a new peace. 
the peace of a new world. And this peace is undergirded by love, and it says, the world is not going to be healed because I can heal it. The world is going to one day be healed because the healer is here. He's come close to us. He's drawn near to us. In these words, Jesus also points to this intimate relationship with the Father that he has. And this is a way that he hasn't really done this in Scripture much before. So not only is Jesus having this intimate conversation with the disciples, he's saying this is relational. This needs to get the core of who you are. You need to stay connected to me. But it's actually rooted in the relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Earlier he said he and the Father are one. They're unified. They have the same voice and they have the same mission. And then he speaks of this other one, the advocate. That's what he calls it, calls him. The other teacher, the Holy Spirit. One of the beautiful things that we believe as Christians is that God is active in the world. He's moving, right? He's not distant or far away, but he's active and he's moving in the world. And the Holy Spirit is teaching us. I like that word advocate because he's advocating for us. He's helping. He's walking with us. He's guiding. And what the Holy Spirit does is he points us to the Jesus story. He gets this Jesus story at the core of who we are. If you look at um, Satan in the scriptures... Satan is often called the accuser. It's actually kind of the primary language that's used for Satan in the scripture. He's basically the one who kind of accuses us. He points us to a different story. He tells us a different truth. He challenges that identity that's in us. So we have the accuser here and the Satan figure, but the Holy Spirit is the advocate. He's the one who helps and teaches us the story. He is the one who gets the story at our core. He's the one who gets it into the bones, into the marrow of our lives, into our bloodstream, this kingdom of God reality. The Holy Spirit replaces the false narratives in our lives. These places where we're tugged to not believe the Jesus story, to not believe who we are and what this new world is. And the work of the Holy Spirit is deep and relational. It's important that we don't extract the words of Jesus from the movement of the Holy Spirit, right? If the words of Jesus just become teachings, just become ethical commands, if a relationship with Jesus just becomes kind of these feelings that are on the surface, we're limited. That's not what Jesus calls us into. He calls us into something deep and something formative. And I wish I could say today that this is something instant. We're going to have an altar call in a few minutes. If, if I were to say this, we're not. Everybody's going to come forward, we're going to pray over you, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are going to be completely formed as a person in the way of Jesus. Yeah, see? should have me come here more often. No. (laughs) But um, that's not how it works. This is process. This is a life that we're called into. This is a relationship that we're called into that is formative. Sometimes we feel wonderful things. Sometimes we have the absence of feelings. Both of those things point us to who Jesus is. Today, um, as we close, I just have a few proclamations that I want to make this morning. These are a few things as we read this story that I think we can confidently proclaim. The first one is, the calling of discipleship is a relational calling. It's deep. It's personal. It's not primarily a moral imperative or an experience, but it's a relationship. Okay, so the call of discipleship is relational. Secondly, this path of discipleship is shaped by love. 
Now, not abstract love, but a Jesus-y love. In fact, at sacrament, we say that that's a good definition for love, is getting all Jesus-y, right? That, that that is the kind of love. He fills it with a specific content, that he gives this word its meaning. So, relational, shaped by love. Third, we can proclaim we're not alone. It's what Jesus says to his disciples. The Spirit is alongside us, in us, guiding us, advocating for us, comforting us, getting the kingdom down into the core of who we are. And so our calling is simply seek after him, listen, follow him as he forms us. And then we have a new kind of peace that's different from the peace of the world. And it's not a peace that can be achieved in the usual ways. If we just do this right, then we'll achieve this certain level of peace. It's a different kind of peace. And it may feel weird, but we can trust. And then the last thing, so relational, shaped by love. We're not alone. We have a different kind of peace, part of a new world. And then the last thing is remember, we have to remember, he is coming again. He is coming again. And that's our hope, that the world will be made right. And that new world is inaugurated now. It started now. But yet one day we hope, even as we see all the brokenness and all the destruction and war and poverty and oppression in our world, we hope and we know and we hold on to the hope that things will be made right. He will return and he will restore. And that hope even shapes us. God hasn't given up on the world. The world is broken, but not forever. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you give us a path that is different from the counterfeits of our world, the places where we find ourselves pulled to fill our chaos with peace or with a different kind of peace. We seek after all of these different stories, these more dominating stories, these stories that kind of make us feel like we want to just win everything. Lord, would you lead us in a different path? Will you show us what true love is? We thank you that you have. And Lord, we ask that by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would form us and shape us to be your church, to be your witnesses. At the times when it feels weird, we could go, we could never live that way. We thank you that we can trust you. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.